Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We cannot be complacent or relaxed because it's a very unpredictable situation and the big question really is is it going to escalate because Baba Mandeb straight ships can reroute If Iran decides to shift its focus to the Strait of Hormuz, which is another narrow shipping channel on the Persian Gulf, that's a whole other massive dangerous kettle of fish. I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines. Regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. I just find bombs and I find dead people, but it's a really scary thing for me. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to defense editor Danielle Sheridan about her agenda-setting front-page news story on how a top British general believes the British army is too small and that the government may need to mobilize the nation in the event of conflict with Russia. Then, I speak to Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva and senior foreign correspondent Sofia Yan about the latest news from Israel and the region. Finally, we hear from economics reporter Melissa Lawford, who gives us her take on the impact of the attacks in the Red Sea on global trade and the economy. It's Friday. The 26th of January, 2024. This week, Daniel Sheridan set the news agenda ablaze with a startling front-page story in the Telegraph. Thank you so much for joining me, Daniel. Your exclusive detailed the thinking of General Sir Patrick Saunders, who suggested Britain should train and equip a citizen army to ready the country for a potential land war, and urged the government to be clear-eyed about Russia. Daniel, take us through your story. Thanks for having me. Yes, so in Wednesday's Daily Telegraph I revealed that the head of the army would be making a speech that morning where he would warn that the British public will be called up to fight if the UK goes to war because the military is too small. So General Sir Patrick Sanders is renowned for being outspoken and he's been publicly critical of troop cuts and the overall lack of investment in the field army and defence. So the media hadn't been briefed that his speech was happening. However, I got wind of it and was able to do some digging and find out what was going to be said. Because of what he was going to say was so significant that the government will need to mobilize the nation in the event of war with Russia, the editorial decision was made to put it on the front page. And it is significant. 
We've heard a lot from politicians about moving from post-war to pre-war. But in reality, what does that actually mean to the regular civilian? In my report, I was able to state that with the British Army being reduced to its smallest size since Napoleonic times, Sir Patrick wanted British men and women to be prepared for a call-up if NATO goes to war with Putin. Now, this came after a senior NATO military official warned that private citizens should prepare for an all-out war with Russia in the next 20 years, which would require wholesale change in their lives. Admiral Rob Bauer said that nations needed to be prepared to find more people if it comes to war and to consider mobilisation as well as reservists or conscription. And that was said in recent weeks. So while Sir Patrick would not support conscription, he believes there should be a shift in the mindset of regular British people where they think more like troops who are mentally prepared that war with Russia could happen. And that's what I think is interesting. It's because we have armed forces that we, regular people, are afforded the privilege of essentially living our lives in a bit of a daydream because they act as a deterrent. But what happens if that deterrent becomes too small? If it keeps being depleted and hollowed out, as we are seeing, and which I write about a lot, with troop numbers for the army set to fall to 72,500 by 2025, which is the smallest in centuries, and a recruitment crisis felt across the whole military, particularly prevalent within the Navy, not to mention the fewer numbers of frigates and destroyers that the Navy has, the fewer number of tanks, artillery, helicopters that the Army has, and then a recent parliamentary report finding that the RAF's fleet of combat aircraft is so small it would be wiped out if Britain went to war with Russia. The UK currently meets its NATO objective of spending 2% of GDP on defence, although Grant Schatz, the Defence Secretary, said he'd like to see this rise to 3%. You have the aggressor, Russia, who is spending nearly 40% of public expenditure on defence. So against that backdrop, it paints a rather bleak picture. And ultimately, I believe that is why the head of the army took it upon himself to say, this is the reality. And regular British men and women need to prepare themselves for the fact that there is a very real possibility they may be called upon to defend the nation. Crucially, when Sir Patrick gave his speech on Wednesday, and this was at the International Armoured Vehicle Expo in Twickenham, he made this point. Ukraine brutally illustrates that regular armies start wars, citizen armies win them. Personally, having reported on the ground in Ukraine numerous times and been in trenches with troops near the front line, what always got me was how many of the men I spoke to had gone from regular nine to five office jobs before the invasion to using assault rifles and flying drones to fight the Russians like it was second nature. So Sir Patrick said Britain should train and equip a citizen army to ready the country for a potential land war. And I know that while Downing Street refused to get involved in the subject, telling reporters it was not helpful to have these conversations, as well as ruling out conscription of citizens, the sources who talk to me about this matter are grateful that the army chief raised it because they say it's something discussed in defence circles on, and I quote, a daily basis. 
Their concern is that the military is far too small. So how the hell could we fight Russia? And will we fight Russia one day? Well, that all depends on what happens in Ukraine. And if Donald Trump, an outspoken critic of NATO and the money being given to the war zone, decides to end the conflict if he becomes president. Based on previous statements he's made, I, in my personal opinion, do fear for the worst. He could pull funding, which would result in Russia becoming victorious and allowing Putin to start taking territory from other countries to rebuild the empire he so badly thinks he's entitled to. Thank you so much, Danielle. Next, let's move to the Middle East and hear from Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva and senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan on the latest news from the region as states and armed groups trade missile strikes and Israel continues to battle Hamas in Gaza. Natalia, can we start with you? What's the latest news this week in Israel? Hi, David, and hi, everyone. It's been quite a busy week, as it's been the case in this part of the world for over four months now. I think we can talk about both what's happening on the ground in Gaza and inside Israel. It looks like the second stage of fighting in Gaza is coming to an end. At least initially, we heard that Israel's plan for the war would include first massive airstrikes, which we saw last year, then a major ground maneuver, which has been happening, and then sort of a lower scale operation securing the border with Israel and gradually withdrawing most of the troops. So most of the fighting is now concentrated on Hani Yunis in the south of Gaza. We still we hear various reports about civilian casualties. There is one particular case that has drawn condemnation from aid groups, which is reports that the idea has been surrounding the Nasser hospital inside Han Yunis. The head of the UN's Agency for Palestinian Refugees said on Wednesday that there was some tank fire on the hospital, killing at least nine people. The IDF has not confirmed the incident. It said that it has been investigating and it's been looking into a possible Hamas involvement. What we know that Han Yunis is very much a battle zone, unlike the north of Gaza, for example, which where most of the troops have been withdrawn. And it looks like this is where Israel is moving to another stage of the war. Inside Israel, we definitely see more pressure from the families of hostages on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the government to produce some kind of a deal with, with Hamas to secure the release of the remaining 130 hostages from the captivity in Gaza. Again, in the past months, we have definitely seen various protests by the hostages' families and their supporters. But in the past couple of days, there were a couple of noticeable events. One, families of the hostages have been picketing outside Benjamin Netanyahu's residence in, in Jerusalem, putting up tents. And also separately, there were protests by women organizations in, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere in the country, including blocking off the major highway in Tel Aviv on Wednesday. I actually stopped by Netanyahu's residence this, this morning to see what's going on. It's in, in West Jerusalem quite a central location. This is not where he actually lives. We know that he typically lives in a coastal mansion on the Mediterranean coast, on Israel's coastline. But this is his official residence. So I just went to check it out on Thursday morning and saw that police is still blocking a big chunk of the street on which the residence stands. But so far, I haven't seen any protesters 
or any tense. So apparently they have they have moved on. And again, for hostages, families are saying that time is running out. They are pressing the government to produce any sort of the deal to save their relatives. Also, last week, we saw some families of the hostages bursting into a, a session of a Israeli parliament committee on finances. But the scene was quite emotional and quite chaotic. And those families burst into the room with, with their placards, yelling and shouting and telling the members of parliament who were there that, quote, there is no parliament, there is no committee. Your only task right now is to save our family members. So we see that their patience is running out. At the same time, there have been reports that Israel is in quite advanced stage to produce a new deal with Hamas. One of the elements would include a two-month ceasefire. As we remember from the start, Hamas has been pushing for a longer ceasefire or preferably the end of fighting as such. The Israeli government has made it clear in the past that this is one of its red lines, that its war in Gaza is not finished because Hamas hasn't been decimated yet, and they would only agree to a ceasefire that would give a pause but would not allow Hamas to regroup. Now, that offer of two months is actually quite significant on Israel's part, and when those details became public earlier this week, we heard some voices on the far-right political spectrum criticizing the government and saying that this is offering too much. At the same time, we are seeing the political scene fracturing in different ways. For example, two of some of the most prominent figures in the war cabinet which is Benny Gantz, who used to be in the opposition and now he's a member of the coalition government, and Gadi Eisenkot, a prominent and well-respected general. They have reportedly been pushing for a broader deal with, with, with Hamas that would offer them more, but that deal would presumably secure the release of all hostages. Again, that hasn't happened yet. And um, I just came across this opinion poll this morning, which I think it's quite indicative of the overall mood in in Israel. Um, That opinion poll by Tel Aviv University conducted earlier this week said that 43% of Israelis of Jewish descent believe that the IDF has used, quote, too little force in Gaza, and uh, over 51% say that it was an appropriate amount. Uh, Again, which shows that there is no um, public appetite for a complete ceasefire, for an end of fighting. Unlike people in the West, unlike people in the West Bank, Israelis often do not see the pictures coming out of Gaza with civilian suffering and massive devastation. So it looks like whatever is happening, whatever pressure the hostages' families are pulling on the government, the Israeli public overall is still in favor of the war and they're okay with Netanyahu to carry on with it. Can we talk a little bit more about Netanyahu then? You mentioned that you sort of swung by his residence earlier today. Pretty much every single time we've spoken, Natalia, we've spoken about his future prospects, what his authority and his position looks like in Israel at the moment. What can you tell us about that that, that idea at the moment? Has he maybe regained some ground in the past few weeks? I don't think so. I, I think Israeli society is still at the point when they are very much at war. It feels like there is a war going on. And there's a broad consensus that Netanyahu definitely has to go. I think that consensus formed on day one of the attack. But also there's this idea that while the country is at war, it's not a good idea to replace him. At the same time, we have been hearing prominent voices calling for his dismissal. For example, Israel's 
former Prime Minister Ehud Baram just recently wrote a, an editorial for the Haris newspaper, and he recently spoke to the Telegraph's Rob Mendick here in Israel, saying that Netanyahu has made too many mistakes, that he made those mistakes before the war by allowing this attack to happen. And he's been handling the, the crisis quite disastrously right now. So she has to go. And yeah, what we heard from Ehud Baram just uh, made it very, very clear when, when he said, quote, in the name of God, go. And he, he suggests that a lot of people in Israel feels like that. Again, we're seeing protests. We're not seeing overwhelming protests like we did a year ago when Israel was gripped by massive weekly protests against Netanyahu's judicial reform. I think the time hasn't come for that yet, but I do think it's quite significant that people like Ehud Barak are, are quite vocal that Netanyahu's departure could be the primary task for Israel right now, even before it deals with the end of the war in Gaza. And what does daily life look like right now in Israel? Are you still hearing quite a few sirens? Are you seeing lots of sort of recently demobilized reservists in the streets? What's your experience, Nasalia? Well, we haven't had any sirens in Jerusalem sp- specifically since, I would say, Christmas time. Overall, there have been much fewer rocket attacks on Israel, which again reflects the IDF's efforts to to just destroy Hamas in in Gaza. Obviously, there is a, you know their cap- capability um, of attacking Israel have greatly diminished. There are still sporadic attacks on the south of Israel. But I would say in the past three weeks that the, the, the number and frequency of those attacks went down quite significantly. In terms of daily life, there are lots of reservists around, people with guns carrying their rifles to coffee shops. If you walk around Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, you will come across a lot of construction sites and they will look like they've been abandoned. All of those construction sites are essentially frozen because Palestinian workers who accounted for the majority of the construction workforce, have not been able to come to Israel for work. Their work permits have been frozen and Israel's construction is a standstill. Last question for me, Natalia. What does WCNSF mean in relation to casualties in Gaza? Yeah, this is the story I uh, was working on last week. It was partly inspired by the Hague at the International Criminal International Court of Justice, which was hearing South Africa's lawsuit against Israel. And one of the, in while listing their arguments in favor of their claim that Israel has been purposefully killing civilians in Gaza, they mentioned, they spoke at length about civilian casualties and the disproportionate effect on the civilian population, including children. And one of the things they mentioned is that doctors in in Gaza came up with a new acronym because they were dealing with this particular type of patient that they hadn't dealt with before. And they called it WCNSF, which stands for Wounded Child, No Surviving Family, because they were seeing so many kids who were rescued from bombed out buildings and doctors only later realized that the child would be orphaned and would have no surviving family at all. We still don't have figures on how many children there are like that who lost their entire families. But the general picture is that, according to UNICEF, about 40% of all of the people who have been killed in the war are children. So obviously, you're going to have a lot of orphans. We were able to speak to families and, and children, and some of the kids were lucky that they had extended families and extended families were able to take them in. 
but again, if you speak to doctors, they would say that often there's too much chaos and confusion and a child like that would be admitted. They would be receiving treatment and then they would be left at the hospital to convalesce because it wasn't immediately clear if there was anyone to take care of the child and it wasn't immediately clear what to do with them later on. Natalia, thank you so much. Sophia Jan, can we start then by talking a bit about developments in the Red Sea? What have you been looking at over the past week? Well, we've seen several rounds of strikes and counter-strikes in recent weeks involving the Houthi rebel group in Yemen. Now, first the Houthis in Yemen, they've been lobbing missiles into the Red Sea along the coast. This has been happening since November, and it's what the group says is appropriate to do in solidarity with Hamas as war between Israel and Hamas continues to go on. The U.S., along with its partners, including the U.K., have launched strikes in response to pressure the Houthis to halt their attacks, which had been significant enough to disrupt shipping in the region. That has quickly had a lot of knock-on effects on global trade. But the Houthi attacks have continued. Just in the last day, they fired several missiles that the U.S. Navy says were intercepted. Now, these missiles were fired toward two ships operated by Maersk, a Danish shipping giant. Now, they were carrying cargo for the U.S. government, carrying supplies for the U.S. military, moving uh, in transit in an official capacity. And that's why they were escorted by U.S. Navy vessels. And that's why the U.S. Navy was around to repel these missiles fired by the Houthis. But even with such a military escort, the attack was of concern and the two ships had to turn around. So you can see that this is really an issue because the Houthis have quite a bit of firepower capability. It's not clear exactly how much they've got, but they are backed by Iran. They have weapons support, training support perhaps from Iran. And so they've got quite the arsenal. And now it's clear that they're not going to stop. They've been saying this all along. This is what senior Houthi leaders have been parlaying in their messages to the public that what the US and the UK are doing and trying to get them to stop, it's not going to work. That's what the Houthis have said. The US and its partners have also said the same thing because their move is to try to get uh, global shipping through this very important route to continue. It has been very disruptive. It's hard to see how this whole situation resolves itself at this point. There aren't that many options. The US, for instance, could launch more significant attacks. But of course, that risks the chance that regional tensions could escalate even further. The fear of all-out war across the Middle East is very real. On the other hand, there could be a move to resolve the Israel-Hamas war, to have a ceasefire, to move toward discussion of what happens to the Palestinians. This is what a lot of nations and other actors in the Middle East have said, that regional concerns aren't going to die down until the root of the problem here is dealt with. And that root is being defined as the ongoing Israel-Palestine conflict. Let's zoom out from the Red Sea and talk a little bit more about some of the regional uh, tensions and developments. You wrote a story the other day about Iraq criticizing the US for, quote, reckless airstrikes on an Iran-backed militia based in the country. Can you tell us about this? What's happening here? This is another spot in the Middle East where the US has been launching strikes. Now, the U.S. has had a presence in Iraq for a long time. These days, in more recent years, they've focused on security coordination, for instance, training Iraq security forces as a hedge against Iranian influence, weapons trafficking, Islamist militant groups. But ever since the Israel-Hamas war broke out, various militia groups that are also backed by Iran have been launching attacks against U.S. troops stationed in Iraq. And the point for them, for these militias, is to pressure Washington because the U.S. is Israel's strongest ally. 
a week ago, there was a very significant attack on an Iraqi airbase that hosts U.S. troops. A few days later, the U.S. responded with strikes into Iraq, and that's what prompted this response from the Iraqi prime minister. It drew serious condemnation from the prime minister. He said that this violated Iraqi sovereignty, that it was a, quote, reckless escalation of tensions in the region, basically accusing the U.S. of making an already volatile situation worse. From the Iraq government's point of view, a U.S. presence right now is destabilizing because it is setting off attacks on Iraqi soil, something that they don't want to see. They don't need the extra headache. So for quite some time now, Iraq has hinted, sometimes not so subtly, that they really want the U.S. to get out. They think this is a big problem. The U.S. and Iraq are now reportedly set to begin talks on ending the U.S.-led international military coalition in Iraq and to figure out next steps. This itself, though, could take months. The actual talks could take a long time. And then physical drawdown of troops could happen and would happen on a much longer time frame. So this is not an immediate solution per se, but rather steps in a direction that could bring about some more calm in the region. With so much shipping diverted from from the Red Sea, with these talks in, in Iraq of the American presence potentially reducing in the future, can we say that the Iranian strategy here has been fairly effective? Well, it's really interesting to see all of this happening. It's happened fairly gradually. War broke out in October between Israel and Hamas. And there was already concern from the very beginning that these groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon or the Houthis in Yemen, uh, you know, that these groups that have ties to Iran would very quickly kick off too, and that this would just become something uncontrollable, something fairly terrifying. And very slowly things have happened over time. I mean, the Houthis got involved weeks in, in November, so a month or so into war, they started to launch attacks that were becoming more and more significant. So you could say in a way that what Iran has built in the region over the years has been a success because these groups are acting in a way that is increasing pressure on the U.S. and Israel. They are diverting U.S. resources, for instance, right now with the U.S. trying to lead this coalition to patrol the Red Sea. This is adding strain to the U.S. military. There are other things that the U.S. military could be doing rather than making sure global trade occurs, global shipping can pass through this part of the world. So in that sense, you could say that it has been a success, but also at the same time, there's a big question of how much control Iran really has over these groups. These groups operate in different countries, and they also have their own political aims. There's a shared similarity in their political thinking and their ideology. They're anti-Israel, anti-US. That kind of big overarching theme is the same, but what the Houthis want in Yemen versus what Hezbollah wants in Lebanon is very different. You know, and it's hard to generalize. It's hard to see how only one sole direction from Iran would be enough to guide everything that they do. And so that's also a, a huge wild card, whether or not Iran can have control over this going forward. And finally, Sophia, just quickly for our listeners, next week we'll have a special bonus episode based all around your reporting. Can you tell us about the only place in Israel where Jews and Arabs choose to live together? When I was in Israel, I found this very interesting place. It's a small village. About 300 people live there. It's situated between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. In Arabic, it's called Bahat al-Salam, and in Hebrew, it's Neve Shalom. It translates to Oasis of Peace, and it's the only place in all of Israel where you've got the Jews and you've got the Palestinians coming to to live together, to coexist, despite their differences, despite a wide range of political opinions. 
it's been around since the 70s. And every time there's war, of course, this community is very impacted. This current war is no different. And in many ways, it's really prompted the residents to think even more deeply about their identities, about how they interact with each other, how they try to understand the other side. And it is the most pronounced, the challenges that this village faces when it comes to the issue of the Israeli military. For a lot of Jewish Israelis, they are required to serve in the military once they turn a certain age. And for them, for many of them, it's a symbol of security. It's a symbol of being safe in their country. But for many Palestinians, the Israeli military is a symbol of what they see as military occupation of their land. And so this is a, an issue that the village has dealt with, has had to deal with and grapple with continuously for many, many, many years from the moment the village began. And I met two young men, both in their 20s, who are handling and dealing with this particular problem right now. One is Jewish, one is Palestinian. They're really good friends. They love basketball. You know, they, they do all the things you would think men in their 20s would be doing, right? They go out, they, they, hang, they hang with each other, they love listening to music, talk about sports. But the geopolitical situation is something that cannot leave their friendship. And one of them, the Jewish Israeli, Adam, he was in the military. He served in the military. He's in the reserves. He's had to go and serve this time around. And his friend Nadim, the Palestinian, has had to really try to understand his friend's side. And it goes both ways. And so it's a really beautiful friendship that they have. And we'll have this interview with the two of them talking through their perspectives on the war and, and how they've managed to stay friends despite all the stuff that's going on. Sophia Yan, thank you very much. Natalia, is there anything we haven't spoken about, about Israel and the surrounding region in the past week you think our listeners should know? I just think that one thing to look out for is negotiations between Hamas and Israel. And it looks like tent tempers are quite high right now with hostages families putting pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu. Also, Qatar is getting quite annoyed with recent remarks, with reported leaked remarks by Benjamin Netanyahu calling Qatar problematic. And uh, as our listeners might know, Qatar has been the key mediator between Hamas and Israel. So obviously, a lot of bad blood there at the moment when really it, it looks like this is the moment when a deal can be made. And it is definitely not, not helping the negotiations right now. Thank you so much, Natalia and Sophia. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Finally this week, we've heard so much about the fighting in the Red Sea. But what does it mean for world trade? How is big business reacting and adapting to the violence? And what does it mean for the future? I spoke to economics reporter Melissa Lawford. Melissa, thank you so much for your time. Let's start with a relatively broad question then. What impact is the conflict in the Red Sea having on global trade? Thank you. Well, I kind of wish I could draw a map for our listeners now. So 
please let me try and do this orally in your minds. So the attacks, and there have been about 30 of them so far, are happening off the coast of Yemen in a narrow shipping channel called the Bab al-Mandeb Strait. It's a choke point which leads to another choke point, a more famous one, which is called the Suez Canal, as we're all very familiar with. And the Suez Canal is the conduit for 12% of global seaborne trade and 30% of our container traffic. And I want to make a distinction here because there's two types of trade which this conflict is impacting. One is the container shipping traffic, which is your consumer goods, food, anything that is stuff, that goes on container ships. Then you have the tanker sector, and that's energy, that's oil, that's bulky stuff like coal, liquefied natural gas, which Europe is getting so much more of through Suez since the war in Ukraine began. So those are the things that are flowing through the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. Now, these attacks mean that a lot of shipping companies have quite rightly said, we can't transit through that strait. What happened first was because most of the attacks were on container ships, we saw all of the container shipping giants, Mass, Carpag Lloyd, MSC, they all came out before Christmas and said, we're not doing it, we're going to reroute. What's happening now that we're seeing the conflict escalate and we're seeing the military response is that disruption is also spreading to the tanker market, which hasn't really been overtly targeted by the Houthis. We have seen some tankers get shot at, but maybe it was a mistake. Those tanker companies are now also starting to reroute. Not all of them. There is still some traffic moving through that strait, but we are starting to see disruption in transport of goods. So like I said, there's two parts to the story. And, and in the container traffic sector, we are seeing delays in deliveries. We've had the likes of Next, Sainsbury's, Ikea, all saying we're getting stuff from this route. And and we're watching closely and we're worried we we might start seeing slower deliveries. I think shipping container imports to Europe via the Red Sea in December were down by a fifth year on year. And that's not all our trade, but it is an issue. And in the energy market, we're seeing tankers carrying Petroleum products, that movement through the Red Sea is down by more than half since December. Crude oil tanker traffic's down by a third, according to Lloyd's List. This stuff is still getting there, but it is just taking a bit longer. When you talk about alternative routes then, to simplify it, does that just mean everybody has to go around Africa? Yes, that's exactly what is happening. One of my friends is South African and he was recently doing a swim off the coast of Cape Town and he came home and he said... There were so many container ships in the background of my swim because this is where all of these ships are are going. And that adds, if you can picture that on a map, it's a huge diversion. That adds about 10 to 14 days to your journey time. That extra time is not just, oh, your goods or your oil is going to take two more weeks to arrive. The cost of that is much higher. And that's time, but it's also fuel costs. So I was talking to the UK managing director of Hapag Lloyd at the end of last week, and he was saying, you know, the fuel bill has gone up so much, double digit millions a month, because they're having to travel further, but they're also doing that faster because they need to get there. They're late. So 
the costs of all of this have just gone up astronomically. I mean, I think we've seen nearly on the freight rates between Asia and Europe, they've nearly tripled. But but to caveat that, you know, because we're all familiar with what happened during COVID and the supply chain crisis that we saw then. And even though those freight rates have tripled, they are still a fraction. If you look on a chart, I mean, the, it's mental how much they rose during the last supply chain crisis. And we're not there yet, but they're still going up and up and up. You've sort of touched on this, but are there any specific sectors that are being hit particularly badly? And also, I'm interested nationally, are there certain countries which are particularly badly hit by, by this crisis? I suppose one thing to say is Europe doesn't get that much food from Asia, or the food that we do get from Asia is normally frozen. You're not seeing chips laden with crates of mouldy bananas. There aren't too many perishable goods coming through. The sectors that are being affected, re- retail, we get a lot of furniture coming in from Asia. As I mentioned, you know, we've seen IKEA warning about delays. Nothing's spoiling. Nothing's really going wrong. The sector where it's really causing problems is manufacturing. Manufacturers, quite often, they don't hold massive inventories or they're working through their inventories quite fast because they're making lots of things. Um, And so if you get a two-week delay, suddenly that can halt your supply chain. And we have seen car manufacturers like Tesla, like Volvo, announce some um, suspensions at their plants in Europe. When it comes to countries that are affected, countries that rely very heavily on exports and imports, they're going to be seeing some effects, but it's not making the wheels come off. I think Egypt is going to be having some problems because their income from the Suez Canal traffic is is going down. I think that's a problem. I think one of the most interesting questions here is this conflict really is coming at the worst time because trade through Suez has, I mean, I can see the data back the last 25 years and it's never been so high because as Europe has decoupled from Russia, we're getting more energy from Asia. We're getting more gas from Qatar, things like that. At the same time, Russia has started sending far more of its goods to Asia. Or he's sending much more of its oil and its gas to China and India. So traffic through sewers has, has absolutely surged. And I think there would be quite a big risk for Russia here because I think its oil and gas traffic through sewers has gone up from something like 20% to 45% since the war in Ukraine began. So Russia is particularly vulnerable Or it would be, except there's been quite a lot of evidence that its tankers are still sailing through and and the jury is out there on whether they've got some kind of specific community or or they feel like they do. And a couple of their ships have been shot at, although analysts say maybe that was a mistake because obviously Russia is aligned with Iran and it's Iran backing the Houthi rebels. So these are attacks on primarily on Western ships. Are there any alternative strategies that these big shipping companies can, can, tanker companies can use? Or is it really just like you, you just have to wait this crisis out? I mean, we'll see some reductions in shipping capacity when ships are on the water for longer. You know, Hapag Lloyd was saying they're chartering some more vessels to fill gaps in their network. But these things have ripple effects across the whole supply chains. It's not just ships, it's also shipping containers. And if everything is out of sync, you know, you can have a ship that is in a port at the correct time and the shipping containers to load it are not. All of those problems will even out. One point that was made to me by uh, the UK Managing Director of Hapag Lloyd 
was that actually, even when this conflict gets resolved, we're going to go through all of this all over again because everyone's going to have to reroute back. And that's going to cause another few months. So I, th- I think the bottom line of this really is this is going to be a problem for a very long time. Even if the conflict gets solved tomorrow, it will take several months to resolve. And I think we are not at a point where this conflict is going to be resolved tomorrow. And then just to break it down, to summarise it really for listeners, consumers in in the West, does that basically just mean everything's going to get slightly more expensive? Potentially, yes. Freight rates make up quite a small proportion of goods prices, but it is going to pile on more pressure businesses are going to be paying more and they're going to be facing a choice. Are we going to pass this on to customers or not? And some of them might say, no, we'll shoulder it. And some of them might say, no, we're going to pass it on. So yes, there is an inflationary risk. There's also a risk to business and their margins. We're we're not out of the woods yet. We cannot be complacent or relaxed because it's a very unpredictable situation. And the big question really is, is it going to escalate? Because Baba Mandeb Strait, ships can reroute. If Iran decides to shift its focus to the Strait of Hormuz, which is another narrow shipping channel on the Persian Gulf, if it decides to start obstructing that, which is something it's threatened to do in years past, that would then mean Qatar couldn't export any of its LNG. And that's not a case of rerouting. That's then becomes a problem with supply. And that's a whole other massive, dangerous kettle of fish. Thank you so much. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. Battle Lines is produced by David Dargahi, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.